Our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, if you'd like to turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Here's what it says. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning desiring, longing, needing to hear from your word. Speak to us now, Lord. Give us understanding. By the power of your spirit, illuminate our minds so that we can understand what we hear from your word. Father, make your words a joy to us. Make your words and commands the delight of our hearts. For we are your people, Lord, and we love you. Help us to love you more this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever heard of someone refer to the Bible uh, as... God's instruction manual for us, the the owner's manual, so to speak, the owner's manual for the human life, God's how-to book, right? I've, I've heard this many times. I'm sure I've used it before. But this way of referring to Scripture, I would say, is at best misguided and at worst dangerously misleading. Let me explain See, the Bible is, is infinitely more than a book filled with instructions and things to do from God. It's, it's not primarily about us, but it's primarily about Jesus Christ. The Bible is the triune God's redemptive plan to save and restore humanity Through Jesus Christ. So the message of the Bible, the point of the Bible, is good news, not good advice. The message of the Bible, or if you want to be really fancy and hip, the meta-narrative, okay, is not things for us to do. But it's about what God has done, is doing, and will do in the future. Okay, so the Bible is actually a lot more like Lord of the Rings than it is an instruction manual. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) It's a story about the God who reveals himself, the, the humans who rebel against him, and the Savior he sends to redeem them. It's a story of Christ's victory over sin, death, and Satan. It's the story of the redemption and salvation of his people, the gathering of his people into the church. It's a revelation of who we are and of who God is. So to reduce the Bible to a set of instructions, an owner's manual on how to live life is is to miss the point. It's, It's to take the focus off of God, off of his story, and to place it on ourselves and and what we are to do. But, but, while the Bible is not God's instruction book for our life, it does contain instructions. It does contain commands from God. It it does contain God's revelation to us of how we are to live, how we are to worship so as to please him. God has graciously revealed these things to us, his people, so that by obeying 
By trusting in him, we can persevere to the end. And that's what we have in this text before us this morning. The very last section of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Now, we won't get through all of it. But what we have are are Paul's final instructions to this church here in Thessalonica. In his letter, he's written about many different subjects. We've covered them over the the months that we've been looking at this letter. He's he's spoken of all sorts of things. Sexual purity, the, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of the unfaithful. The faithfulness of the Christians in Thessalonica, suffering, their love for one another. This church in Thessalonica, remember, is is a brand new church plant. They've been kind of left on their own, and they're in need of instruction and encouragement. Brand new church full of new believers from very diverse backgrounds, some Greek, some Jews, some poor, some rich, some slaves, some free All of them together now, because they've become Christians, because they've, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, turned from idols to serve the living God, all of them now facing the persecution of the surrounding culture together. Some have died. Some have become discouraged because of this. They're feeling the culture press in on them. And they're trying to figure out what it looks like for a church to remain faithful. How are they going to persevere to the end. That's what we're looking at this morning. Paul's kind of machine gun bullet point instructions to the church. And so the outline as we look this morning, as we, as we go through verse 14 and 15, is very simple. We're just going to look at Paul's commands and see what he says to this church by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see six commands. I don't know why I said this. That's two, three, six commands. Pray for my children, please. Um, six commands that we must follow as a church to maintain our unity and to flourish as a God-glorifying church here in San Diego. But before we get to those six commands, let's look at the first phrase, because this isn't really a command. This kind of sets up what he's going to do. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers. So back in verse 12, he had kind of started this, this section, this final section with, we ask you, brothers. And we talked last week that that's really more than an ask. This is a command. He's commanding these things that are going to come. And the same is true for verse 14. He's urging them to obey what he's about to tell them. These are not Paul's suggestions for church life. These are not his good advice. But, but through Paul, these are God's commands to the church in Thessalonica. This is how they are to live as a body of Christ. The church is is God's, it's Christ's church, and so he has the authority to tell them and to tell us how we are to interact with one another, how we are to live in the fellowship, the body life of the church. God defines what unity is, God defines what love is, and so God defines what a healthy church is. Let's keep that in mind as we move through the text. But second, also notice this, who is this addressed to? Again, this is addressed to the brothers, or in Greek, brothers and sisters is a perfectly fine translation. In other words, this is addressed to the church. Be as if Paul was standing here addressing all of us. All of the commands that follow right here in verse 14 and 15, and really the rest of the letter, they're all plural in form. So these are not commands to individuals, these are commands to the church as a whole. This is important because, again, it reinforces this idea that we are all in this together. We are all responsible for one another. That's what church membership is all about. When, you, when we say the covenant together, when you agree to abide by the covenant, we agree to take care of one another. We are responsible for one another. So there's, there's no such thing in Scripture as a private individual faith, a private individual Christian To be a follower of Christ is to be a part of his people, the church. You cannot obey or live by plural commands all by yourself. And so we, as a church, bear the glorious privilege and responsibility of living according to God's design. Pastor John Stott writes this on this this phrase right here. He said, "It it is the church 
not the leaders whom Paul now urges to give pastoral care to specially needy people in the congregation and indeed to each other. Keep this in mind. Here's what he says. The existence of pastors does not relieve members of their responsibilities to care for one another. See, Paul had commanded the church last week to respect its pastors, to esteem them highly in love, and we looked last week at the pastor's responsibilities to the congregation, but that doesn't mean that it's the pastors who do all the ministry and the church just sits there and supports them. That's not the New Testament model. That is how some churches operate, but that's not the New Testament model. Ephesians 4 tells us that the job of the pastors is to equip the congregation to do the work of ministry. This is why the, one of the most common words to refer to the office of pastor or elder in the, Old Te- in the New Testament is overseer. The pastor is an overseer. We are supposed to oversee and participate in the ministry that is going on in the body. So that's, that's the setup. So these commands now come not to the pastors, not to individual people, but to the church. So let's, let's look at them. Six commands. Six commands that we as a church, a congregation, must obey together. Six things that should mark the fellowship here at Del Cerro. This is what the things that we should do. These are how we should love one another. Number one, admonish the idol. We are to admonish the idol. We must warn them. That's what admonish means. We must counsel them to cease being idle, to stop being idle. And we talked last week a lot about this word admonishment, about the leadership's responsibility to admonish the congregation. But this week, Paul focuses in on the church's responsibility to admonish one another, specifically the idol. This is something we must do. So we must ask the question then, well, who are the idol? What does it mean to be idle, to be a person that is idle? This is a difficult question because Paul uses a very unique word here. Uh, In fact, Paul uses a word here that's found nowhere else in the New Testament. This is the only place it shows up. Well, it shows up in 2 Thessalonians as well. Uh, But in these two letters, this is the only place it's used. So we don't really have much else to go on in that sense. And and if you look at different translations, I don't know which one you have, you can see this because almost every translation translates this word differently. So ESV, what we use here, says the idol. The NIV says idol and disruptive. They're trying to catch kind of some different meanings here. The King James says unruly. The NET says undisciplined. The NLT says lazy. The CSB says irresponsible. The legacy standard says unruly. And then the Geneva Bible says out of order. Okay, so these are kind of all different things, right? So we're, we've got to kind of see how, how do we get at what this word means? Because if we're supposed to admonish these people, we need to know who they are, who needs our admonishment. Now, I, I have to be honest, I don't really like the translation idol because I'm not sure it communicates to us what's really behind this Greek word. When, when I hear idol, I think lazy, uh, like the NLT says. I think someone who's um, just not really working or something like that. I don't think that's the, the root issue here. From, from my study, I believe this, this uh, sense of disruptive or disorderly is a, is a better a way to communicate what's going on. I, I like that Geneva translation, out of order. This is a person who's out of order. So, so listen how the, the standard Greek lexicon defines this word. It's this word, ataktus. Okay, so this is what it says. Pertaining to being out of step and going one's own way, disorderly, insubordinate. Now, someone who is being lazy or undisciplined is doing that but it's a larger category than just that. In other words, someone living in laziness, not working, refusing to provide for themselves, relying on others, that is a form of disorderliness. It's a form of living out of order and going one's own way. But there are other ways to do this as well. 
Ultimately, the person who is idle or disorderly is someone who's living by their own rules instead of by the word of God. They're living by their own rules instead of obeying kind of the rule of the community. So this same Greek word, they used it sometimes of a soldier who doesn't keep their place in the ranks, right? They're marching to the beat of their own drum, so to speak. This, this word was used of someone who would go to the gymnasium, and they had those back then, but they didn't, they didn't do their gymnasium stuff according to the listed rules of the gymnasium. Okay, we've seen those people here in the gym. You know, the person who doesn't wipe down the bench, and you get there, and you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Don't be that person. That's to be disorderly, to not follow the order, follow the rules. So the fourth century father, John Chrysostom, He says this word, that's translated idol, applies to all in the church who are living in willful sin. So you kind of are getting the picture here. This this person is is someone who's disruptive to the peace and unity of the church. It, It could be blatant. So this could be someone who's interrupting things on purpose, seeking their own agenda, trying to subvert the authority. Someone who interrupts a member's meeting to label false and dramatic accusations at the pastor's. But it could also be subtle. It could be living in in, in private sin, thereby rejecting God's word. Because we're all connected, when we, any one of us, chooses to live in sin, to reject God's word, it affects the whole community. It's disruptive. It's disorderly. Our sin is never a private matter. Whether we can see it or not, it leaks out onto everybody. By living like this, again, however it manifests itself, this is someone who thinks that they are above God's word, and they demonstrate this by living out of order. Someone, again, who lives according to their own rules. They refuse to submit to the church, its leaders, or the scriptures. So that's the diagnosis. Paul says the cure is admonishment. The remedy is admonishment. It's a warning, a, a call to repentance. This is our job as a church. This is your job. And, and really, there's, there's kind of two categories for how we accomplish this. The first is individually. So you can obey this command to admonish the idol, to admonish someone who's disorderly, by going to a brother or sister you know is living in sin and warning them to stop, to repent, to turn away from their sin and turn back to Christ. Let's say you know one of your fellow church members, church members is, is committing some form of sexual sin. They're committing adultery. They're, they're uh, committing fornication. You go to them. You warn them. You urge them to turn away from sin, to forsake the sin that you know will lead to their death. Urge them to come back to fellowship. This could go for any number of sins. I remember a time in my own life when I was young, I don't know, 20-something, younger. Is that more comfortable for you? Uh, It's all relative. Uh, When I was younger, so early 20s, I think, maybe late teens, many moons ago, I was growing in my knowledge of scripture, growing in my, my knowledge of theology, you know, taking classes at college. I had developed a way of speaking and interacting with people that, unbeknownst to me, was, was prideful and condescending. And in this moment, I was disorderly. Now, I wouldn't have characterized myself like that, but that's the truth. And so I needed to be admonished. I was disrupting the fellowship with my pride. And thank God, one of, my, one of my brothers, a mentor, just pulled me aside one day, took me out for coffee, and lovingly, with an with a older brotherly tone, yet boldly, he set me straight. He loved me enough to be honest with me and to obey this verse. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something to the effect of, you know, I love that you're growing in these things. I love that you, you love scripture, but the way that you're coming across is, is prideful. It's not Christ-like. You need to be mindful of that. You need to practice humility. Chill out a bit, right? Check your heart. Now, was that hard to hear? Of course it was hard to hear. Your pride immediately rears its ugly head, right? It wants to be defensive. 
but I received it and by the grace of God, I still, I mean, I can remember that conversation. And every time I think of it, I am so thankful for his love for me. I'm so thankful for his faithfulness to the word of God that he would do that for me because God uses that to shape us into his image. God uses us, one another, to shape each other into the image of Christ when we obey. We are commanded to do this. Again, it's one of the ways that we protect each other from sin, from forsaking the faith. Hebrews 3.13 says, how often should you do this? Every day as long as it is called today, so that we might protect each other, so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's how we protect the unity of the church. We need to admonish the idol. And also, keep in mind, you need to receive that admonishment when it comes to you and pray for it. Again, this is how we will grow in Christ-likeness. How many times have you prayed for God to grow you in Christ-likeness? Then when your brothers and sisters comes and says, hey, I see this area in your life that's not in line with Scripture, and you're like, well, don't, who are you to tell me anything? Right? This is how we grow. This is one of the means that God uses. So that's kind of the individual way this could work. But it's not just an individual matter. It also can be done corporately as a body. See, according to Jesus' instructions for the church in Matthew 18, when, it, when you go to a brother or sister, tell them their sin and they refuse to repent, that sin then eventually is brought to the church. This is, this is the corporate dimension of admonishment. We as a church obey this command when we practice church discipline. And again, this, this is kind of situational. It may look different. But when we as a body admonish a brother or sister who is out of order, this is what we're doing. Now, again, this could look like a lot of different things, but we have a good example in 2 Thessalonians. So just flip over the page to 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 11. There were some people that were idle. There's a lot to this and what they were doing. But, but look what Paul commands the, the same exact church here in 2 Thessalonians. So in verse 11, he says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Okay, so busy bodies. They're disrupting the fellowship. There's that disruptive idea. Paul says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. In other words, stop it. Paul's admonishing them. As for you, brothers, to the church, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, here's what he says. Here's how to handle someone that refuses the admonishment. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him. That's the word admonish. Same exact word. Warn him as a brother. That's a plural command to the church. So you can see kind of what Paul is recommending here. The church is to take note of someone who refuses to obey, who refuses to forsake their sin, and to have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. It's a, it's a warning, an admonishment. The whole church is getting together to say, you're going down the wrong path, brother, sister. It's, I, I don't think this is excommunication yet. They're not kicking them out of the fellowship, but it's, it's kind of the last step before that happens if they refuse to repent. That's why Paul says, warn him as a brother. I don't know exactly specifically what this might look like. It might look like being excluded from the Lord's table for a season. It might look like being asked to step down from ministries some of those quote-unquote church privileges being revoked so that this brother, this sister would feel the weight of their sin, that they would be ashamed of it. And that's not the end, just so they would feel ashamed, but so they would repent, come back to Christ, forsake their sin. That's what corporate admonishment looks like. It's not done with a tone of anger, but with a tone of love. It is never loving to let one another live in sin that we know leads to death. 
So church, as, as hard as it may be, we need to be ready, we need to be prepared to love each other deeply enough, to trust God deeply enough to be faithful to these commands. We need to place God's word, God's standard above our own. And out of love for God and love for our brothers and sisters, we must admonish the idol both individually and corporately. But that's not the only thing we're called to do. We are also, look at, look at the next phrase in the verse, to encourage the faint-hearted. Now, though, before we look at this, notice there are different remedies for different people. And if we're not careful, we can do a lot of damage if we apply the wrong remedy to the wrong person. So just, just think about that as we go through. If you try to admonish the faint-hearted, you're going to harm them. If you try to admonish the weak, you're going to harm them. If you try to encourage the idle, just help them, you're going to harm them. So as we go through, be thinking, you know, kind of personality-wise, each one of us is probably gravitates a little bit more towards help, towards encouragement, towards admonishment. Think of what you're drawn to and be careful as you interact with people. You know, it's kind of like the old adage, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? If you're good at admonishing people, you think that's the solution to everything, you could do a lot of damage. You could also do a lot of damage just encouraging everyone. You could end up enabling people in their sin. So as we go through, be thinking of this. So who are the faint-hearted? It's kind of an interesting phrase. It's those brothers and sisters who are discouraged in the faith. They're anxious. They're worried. For, for some reason, their faith in God is, is wavering. Maybe downtrodden could be a, a phrase to use. Could be for many reasons to be discouraged in the faith. I mean, think of the Thessalonians. If anyone had reason to be discouraged, they would have reason to be discouraged and faint-hearted. They were being persecuted. The Jews in Thessalonica had stirred up the whole city against them when Paul and Timothy were there. Look at Acts chapter 17. This is about what's, what's happened when Paul was in Thessalonica. This is how their church started, okay? And it says, and when they could not find them, they're looking for Paul and Timothy, they dragged Jason, he's one of the members of the church, and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Okay, that's an accusation of treason. They're trying to get them killed. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed, and when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the the culture that they're operating in. They're being accused of treason. Their money's being taken. And they certainly had lost favor in the city. Some of them may have lost their jobs. Some of them may were, were just experiencing problems with their careers, so to speak, because of this. They were experiencing persecution from their families. Some of them had died. This, this is why Paul had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica in the first place. Paul was worried because of how, uh, how uh, hostile the city was that the church wouldn't even make it, that they would have just given up. They had a heavy burden of affliction and persecution. So some of them had become faint-hearted, discouraged, weighed down with the darkness of the world, and tempted to just give up. Wondering, why, God? Why, why is this happening? So, Paul, the good doctor that he is, again applies a remedy, encouragement, encouragement. Those in this category, discouraged, faint-hearted, need encouragement. They need comfort. Church, we, we must identify and notice our brothers and sisters who are discouraged in the faith and encourage them with the gospel of Christ. We, we must comfort them with the glorious truths found in Scripture. Now, this command to encouragement is, is not a command to hallmark cards. 
It's not a command to encourage people with worldly platitudes or empty Christian cliches. We, we don't just come alongside one, someone who's discouraged in the faith and slap them on the back and say, everything's going to be fine. That's not biblical encouragement. We encourage one another with eternal truths. We remind each other of the gospel. We remind each other of the victory of Christ over sin and death and Satan. Paul is constantly doing this in his letters. In 2 Thessalonians, to encourage the church, he reminds them of God's judgment and vengeance on the wicked. In 1 Thessalonians 4, to encourage them, he reminds them of the resurrection of the dead, of the return of Christ. And he looks to his words there and says, encourage one another with these words. That type of thing, the gospel, is the content of our encouragement. The deep truths of Jesus Christ, again, his gospel, his victory, brought by a brother or sister in a time of discouragement is what Paul has in mind. And church, we can obey this command in many different ways. We, we obey this command when we pray for one another. I'm sure you've had the experience, if you come on a Wednesday night for our prayer night and you just listen to the prayers of your brothers and sisters, you will be encouraged. If you ever asked someone to pray for you and they prayed for you and the Lord used them to encourage you, I've had that experience many times. We obey this command when we remind each other of the scriptures. We point each other to Jesus Christ. And we also obey this command when we sing songs that remind us of the faithfulness of Christ as a church. Now think about this with me for a second. I know for a fact that there are people here this morning who are discouraged in their faith. You may know it by looking around, you may not. But they're here. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's, it's something that's happening in their family. Something that's happening at work. But think about it. After this sermon is over, we're going to sing a song, Christ, the Sure and Steady Anchor. I, this entire song is just one long biblical encouragement to the faint-hearted. Same with the song that we sang before, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. Now, you may think of a song like that and think, well, I'm not really suffering. This isn't really the song that I need to sing right now. But think of your brothers and sisters who are here, who are discouraged, who can hardly bring themselves to sing. Church, in that moment, you minister to them, you encourage them. When you lift up your voices together to sing these songs, when you use your voice to praise God in his gathering, the Spirit of God uses your voice, our collective voice, to strengthen the faith of our brothers and sisters. Too often in the church, we have over-individualized singing and worship. We've thought of it as my private moment with God. That's not what it is. That's not what it is at all. It's not, not about us as individuals. It's about God. It's about us as a church, his people. It's more akin to an army on the march singing songs to keep themselves in step and to give them courage before they enter into battle. So when you refuse to sing, when you're quiet, not only are you withholding praise from God, but you're withholding encouragement from your church family who needs it. So let's sing. When it comes time to sing, let's lift our voices together. Church, we are responsible for those who are idle. We must admonish them, and we are responsible for those among us who are faint-hearted. We must encourage them in Christ. And third, we must help the weak. Help the weak. Now, at first glance, weak sounds similar to faint-hearted, and there's probably some overlap. These are very general commands, I think, because there's so many different situations. But weak really here is, is those in the body who need an extra amount of care. They're needy. 
Essentially what Paul is saying here is give them that care that they need. Help them. Now, now this could be applied to a lot of different circumstances. This word in scripture is, is used of those who are physically sick. So maybe they're, they're physically sick. They're, maybe they're, they're getting on in age or something else. Maybe they're homebound. They're, they're weak. They're weak. They need help. Maybe it's those, sometimes it's used in scripture, of those who are socially or economically weak. They're in financial need. The poor, orphans, immigrants, refugees. Paul says, give them the help that they need, church. And then Paul also uses this word, interestingly enough, of those who are spiritually weak, religiously weak. And, and the way that he uses it is kind of meaning their, their conscience is sensitive. It's easy for them to to be uh, thrown off of the faith. It's easy for them to stumble. So he uses this in in Romans 14.1. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And he goes on. You can read Romans 14 if you want to see the context of that. But the point in this passage is, whatever category this, this weak person is in, doesn't matter. We are to help them and not look down on them. We are not to be exhausted with them. We are not to be bitter at them that they need our help and our care. We are to be devoted to their care as a church. We are to make every effort to help them, to help them be just as much a part of the body as anyone else, because in reality, they are. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 12 that that the body parts that we perceive as weak are actually Sometimes the strongest that God is using. Romans 15, listen to what Paul says here. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So again, what he's saying here, if they need physical help, food. Rides to church, rides to the doctor, help with rent, someone to push their wheelchair. We do our best to try and meet that need. If they need spiritual help, we give it to them. If we know there are things that will make them stumble because of their weak conscience, we avoid those things. We devote ourselves to helping them. And this, this word help, it's, it means like cling to them, like we We do everything we can to keep them a part of the body. Church, we we are to be faithful to this, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. And here might be the hardest part of all. In and through all of this, Paul calls us to be patient with everyone. To be patient with everyone. This might be the hardest part. We, we can all bear with people for a time, right? But all of these types of situations take time. None of these are situations that are a quick fix. The disruptive brother who's walking in sin, the faint-hearted sister who just can't seem to get her head above the water in the faith, the constantly weak and needy in our church who need constant care, we must be patient with them all. We must bear with them in love. Now, this is, this is difficult for us because we live in a fast-paced world. A world where we can click buttons on a screen and get stuff delivered instantly to our door. We want things done now. But sanctification is not like that. The church fellowship is not like that. The Spirit does not work in people's lives according to our timetables. And so we must be patient with everyone as we admonish, as we encourage, as we help. We do these things in an ongoing way, patiently, lovingly. Now, we, again, we want to excuse ourselves from this, right? We want to blame our fast-paced world, but that's not the problem. The problem is our sinful pride, our selfishness. We want to excuse ourselves. Well, I'm just not a patient person. That's my problem. It's it's not my fault. I'm just not patient. 
That's not an option for a Christian. That is not an option for a Christian. Any more than it would be to just say, well, I'm just an alcoholic. That's just who I am. It's not an option. Let me remind you of of what the Bible has to say about patience. And I I needed to hear this a lot. You have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. We're called to bear with them in patience as well, okay? So the scriptures teach us this. Number one, God himself is patient. It is one of his defining perfections. When Moses asks to see his glory in Exodus 34, the text says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So God himself is proclaiming, this is my glory, Moses. In other words, this is who I am. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. There's the patience and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the God that we serve. Patience is one of his perfections. If we want to be like him, we must be patient with each other. Patience is also a characteristic of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient in kind. Does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. That's not a text for weddings. You could use it at a wedding. That's fine. But it's about the life in the body, the church. That's what it's about. So when we say, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. When you say, I love you to your husband. I love you. Part of what that means, biblically defined, is patience. We must be patient. Number three, God has been and continues to be patient with you and with me. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient with us. He was patient with us before we came to Christ. He's patient with us in Christ when we still sin, when we still mess up. He's patient with us. How wicked would it be to then turn on our brothers and sisters and say, I don't have any patience for you. I know God does, but I don't have any. No, we must be patient. And patient, this is the last one, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit is working in someone's life, one of the things that will come out, that will grow, is patience. Galatians 5.22, I'm sure we could all say this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and he continues. So church, if we claim to be the people of the infinitely patient God, if we claim to love his church, if we understand and believe in the gospel, we must be patient with each other. A people filled by the spirit of God will be a patient, gracious, loving people. Now that doesn't mean that we've arrived, doesn't mean that we won't make mistakes, but if the spirit is at work, we will be growing in our patience. Because that's what God's like. It's the essence of the gospel. It doesn't come from our own strength, but thank God it's a fruit of the work of the Spirit of God. So if you find yourself lacking patience, join with me in praying, God, use your Spirit to work in my life. Make me more patient. I want to obey your word. So that's four commands. Number five. We are to see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. And you can see how these are all connecting. If you're obeying one, they're going to overlap. We are to see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. It's pretty straightforward, church. When someone mistreats us, we don't mistreat them in return. It goes right along with patience. We never repay a wrong for a wrong. When someone wrongs us, this does not give us an excuse to wrong them. And like we get this at the larger level, we're like, yeah, well, if someone, you know, murdered one of my family, I wouldn't go murder their family. But this applies even down to the way that we interact and speak with one another. We're tempted to to excuse ourselves. I see this in my kids, right? They're four and a half and two and a half, and they're always playing together and coming up with all sorts of mischief. Just yesterday, I I was studying and I had my headphones on, but even with my headphones on, I can hear them start screaming at each other from the other room, right? And so I go in to see what's going on. And Joelle, my daughter, had had built a tower out of blocks. And you can see where this is going. 
My son had knocked it down, and so she had screamed at him. And what happens when a four-year-old screams at a two-year-old? He started screaming back, and everybody's crying, okay? And so I calmed them down and explained to them why it's not okay to yell at each other. And they, they were very, uh, they were sorry. They hugged. It's the cutest thing. And it was all good. Uh, this is a common occurrence. And then Joel says this, and I was literally like studying for the sermon, and Joel says, don't worry, Daddy, I won't scream at him again unless he knocks down my tower again. <laughs> okay, that, and we, and we laugh, and I laughed, and in my own head, I was like, oh, Lord, how I am like that. How I am like that. I won't wrong this person again unless they wrong me. Then that gives me an excuse to kind of get back at them. This is, this is immaturity. It's sinfulness. We so often think the same way, right? Well, I wouldn't have said that to my wife, but she said this to me, so, right? I, I, would, ha- I would respect my husband, but he does this. this. This is how we're tempted. We must not be like this. This is not faithfulness to Christ. I heard one pastor say like this, we must not be like the lady whom the neighborhood forgot to invite to the block party, and so on the day of the party, they came to her house to invite her, And she said, it's too late. I already prayed for rain. Okay? That's not how we are to act in little vengeance. And well, this person did this, so I'm going to do this. They did this wrong, now I can kind of meet their wrong. They said this, I'll say this. Sin never excuses sin. We are never to repay evil for evil on the largest scale or on the smallest verbal scale. And this is the example all over the New Testament because it comes straight from Christ himself. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Turn the other cheek. This is what he's talking about. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We are not to be a people marked by pettiness, by grudges, tit-for-tat, eye-for-eye mentality. We are to be a people marked by love, by graciousness, by forgiveness, never responding to evil with evil, never snapping back at someone because they said something we didn't like. So that's what we're not supposed to do. But we aren't just not to do evil. Paul's last command, we are to seek good. Always, he says, but instead of repaying evil for evil, but rather always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So instead, church, instead of repaying evil for evil, we seek the good of everyone. This is what love does. This is how the fellowship should look, and this is how others should see our church. Seeking to do good to everyone. When? Always. Always. Not only on Sundays, not only on Wednesday nights, not only if you're in a good mood, but always. Now, this verse is interesting. Look at verse 15. Look at that word, seek. Now, again, this, this, is, a, this is actually a very forceful word. It, it implies a, an active seeking, an active looking, uh, a pursuit mindset. Someone who's kind of on the hunt, okay? It's the same word translated elsewhere in Scripture as persecute. So think of Paul before his conversion. He's persecuting the church. And what is he doing? He's going from house to house, seeking out the Christians, trying to find them so that he can drag them and arrest them and ultimately kill them. Similarly, we are to seek good out. It gives this picture of it's like good works are kind of hidden all around us like a giant Easter egg hunt. And we're supposed to turn over every rock, look behind every door to find them and do them for the glory of God. It's, it's an active mindset. We're to actively, earnestly, passionately, with all effort, look for ways to do good and bless those around us. This type of love, it's, it's a decision. It's an act of the will. We should spend time thinking about ways to do good strategizing ways to bless people, praying for opportunities to love those in our church and those in our neighborhoods. We are to be devoted to doing good works as a way to love those around us and to bring glory to God. We're to give of ourselves, our time, our money, our energy, 
in order to bless others in the name of Christ. And again, this is the testimony of the entire New Testament. Galatians 6.10, Paul says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There we're, we're encouraging one another to do this exact same thing. Titus 3, 1 for 2, we're to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Ready for every good work. We're always ready. Titus 3, 8, one of the results of our salvation, so that those who have believed in God, he's just shared the gospel essentially, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. We're to be devoted to the good of others. And my favorite one, Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. This is our calling. This is what God is calling us to. And it's, it's a weighty calling. We will often fail, and we will need to constantly rely on God's grace. We will need, need to rely on his forgiveness and the forgiveness of our brothers and sisters. We will need to work and strive side by side to obey this together. Now, this is, this is hard. There's six things that we're supposed to do, but we're not to accomplish this on our own strength and our own power. We are to be fueled by the grace that God has given us in his gospel. These commands are to be obeyed, not so that we can work ourselves into God's good graces, but they are to be obeyed out of the overflow of the love that God has lavished upon each one of us in Jesus Christ. When we were dead in our sins, slaves to our sins, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, for us. He redeemed us through his life, his death, his resurrection, and then he transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom into his family, the body of Christ, the church. He's, he's given us a mission as a church. He's given us instructions on how we are to interact with one another. He's called us, specifically here, this church, he's called us to live alongside one another and to grow in Christ-likeness together by loving one another through obeying his commands. And most importantly, he has filled us with his Holy Spirit and given us the power to do this very thing. What would that look like? What does it look like? It looks like a church admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with everyone, never seeking to repay wrong for wrong, but always seeking earnestly to do good to everyone. Brothers and sisters, God has been faithful to us, and he will continue always and forever to be faithful to us. Let us, by his grace, be faithful to him this morning and always. Would you pray with me?